Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to episode 53. This is the beginning of our series about Revolution in Motion, the new space opera album by the Disco Biscuits. It's an incredible techno rock opera story, aka the space opera, about a band that goes to outer space and inadvertently saves the universe. Saves Earth and everything else in the universe, too. It's amazing. It's amazing what you can do with good music, folks. You can become a marathon runner with good music. You can, you know, ski alone regularly with good music. You can travel the world with good music. You can be alone with your thoughts with good music. You can have a friend at the darkest times of your life good music and that's what 2024 is about folks we're doing good music all year long you know i i I heard a bunch of like billionaire types talking about how they're buying bunkers and buying radiation suits and i just don't understand these people who are entrusted with running our whole you know capitalism is get capital to the most efficient users of the capital and then so they give all this money to billionaires and and then the billionaires take it and spend it on radiation suits and concrete holes in the ground and we did this before folks we did this in the 50s there's a bunch of concrete holes in the ground from the 50s that nobody ever used and the atomic scare was pretty damn real back then just as real as it is now, even probably more because you, they didn't know how to control it back then. They didn't know what to do. I guess they don't know that anymore anyways. But still, I would just like to say to all the billionaires out there that are buying radiation suits, just do something good for someone else because your radiation, the chance that the world explodes and you happen to have built a bunker that saves you, what good does that do you? You're going to watch old Friends reruns till you're you know, in a and play ping pong further than and eat canned soup. You know, it, it almost would be better to go out. And if you're going to go out, like go out satisfied. And the way to get satisfied, folks, is to help other people. That's the way to be happy. Everybody knows it. The billionaires know it, but nobody wants to do it because it's work. And sometimes it doesn't work out. And sometimes you you interface with some crabbies, you know, some crabby people who are annoying. Let's face it. Let's face it. That's the real downside. But still, I'm sure the guys selling radiation suits are kind of crabby. And definitely the people who are pouring the concrete in your bunker are probably a little crabby too. Unless they're getting really overpaid. And then they're probably real smiley that you're paying them to dump concrete in a hole in the ground. You know what I mean? Which I see the value of. I see the value of that. At least you're spending... The money. I mean, so many billionaires just sit on it. They don't do anything. It's like they can take it with them or something. It's like giving it to their kids is such a great thing to do. I mean, the kids are just going to freak out on it too. I mean, in LA is filled with kids who have gigantic trust funds and are just not, not as happy as you would think they would be, you know? And so my advice is if you're at the point where you're starting to think about how you're going to react to nuclear fallout, Pump the brakes, dog. And, you know, go to a soup kitchen and serve soup. 
uh, support, send a kid to college, um, support a family that is in need uh, personally, you know, just find somebody in your family that isn't as rich as you and help them, you know, help people. That'll make you feel better. That'll make you feel satisfied. And then when the world explodes because of nuclear war and you find out that your bunker wouldn't have worked anyways, then, hey, you at least did something good. You know, hey, try that on for size. I'd also like to say that uh, congratulations to Michigan for winning the college football playoff. Um, The front seven of Michigan won the college football playoff. They beat Alabama. I mean, frankly, Alabama could have won that game and they could not get the Michigan front seven to get out of the way so they could score the next touchdown. They settled for a field goal and then Michigan was able to tie it up and go to overtime. And it was just all, it was enough good luck. I mean, look, they beat uh, Michigan, beat Alabama. They beat a good team and then they won the playoffs. So I hand it to them. If they had gotten into the playoffs, played Florida state and rolled them 63 to three or whatever that score was, then I would have been, you know, a little concerned that college football is like that. But then again, it's kids playing football. So just let them have some fun. Let them win a championship every now and again. Um, great, great front seven, though. Incredible team. And I congratulate them on winning. Congratulations to uh, Kaplan. You know, you know he's a big Michigan guy. There's a bunch of, a bunch of my friends are big Michigan guys. So I, I hope they're happy with this one. Uh, it was a good one. Those, those games were really good. I watched them all and I enjoyed it. And that's why college football rules. Real quick, uh, just a little conversation before we get into this incredible episode that Max and Joey and myself are discussing. Everything you'd want to know about Revolution in Motion, the space opera, characters, points of view, words, lyrics, songs, everything you would want to talk about. Let me just say real quick that I'm teaming up as Baba G, playing my Baba G instrument with guitar and the Baba G instrument and some vocals. I'm teaming up with DJ Brownie and we're doing interlocking sets. We did it in Baltimore. It was a great success. And now we're going to do it again, potentially in LA and Venice Beach. And then definitely at Agave in Avon, Colorado on February 8th. These are small venues. Tickets will sell out. Uh, The Agave venue is literally on the way from Aspen to Boulder. So if you're on the Biscuit Tour, that's a good night to play. Go skiing and then hang out and watch me and Brownie do interlocking sets and cool stuff. And then... uh, you know, Venice Beach is the day before the Biscuits play in L.A. So come a day early. Come to that show. These are small number shows. They'll probably sell out just because it's literally less than 300 tickets per venue. So we'll see you there. Just want to let you know because, you know, we don't really have a marketing machine for those two acts yet. I guess Brownie kind of does. He's got a website, DJ Brownie. And, uh, you know, me, I, I could put a website up, but I'm too busy podcasting for you guys because I want to talk to you directly. I don't want to put a website up and have you look at pictures. I want to talk to your face and your ears. I want you to hold your hold your headphones into your ears right now and listen to everything that I say. Everything. We have lots of biscuit shows in 2024. Lots. We have lots of Bisco releases in 2024. Lots. We have new songs coming that are going to be on this tour that literally first couple shows in new songs so you know yeah you 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 gotta you gotta you gotta come along folks you gotta come along for the for the good times and the good vibes right 
Good, good times, good vibes. 24, baby. We're doing it. We're mass communicating. Let's do We're it. Mass communicating. We're mass here a few updates before we get to our first installment in our exclusive four-part series covering the disco biscuits new concept album revolution in motion available wherever you download or stream music on march 29th 2024 the disco biscuits and touchdowns all day have a lot of exciting things in the works for you over the next few months starting with the release of revolution in motion chapter one and the accompanying mini movie which just dropped every few weeks from here on out until the end of march the band is going to release another chapter in the saga for a total of four and each is going to be accompanied by its own animated video and a dedicated touchdowns all day episode like this one where john joey and i and some special guests will explore the history and mythology of the space opera I'm so excited for you to hear these episodes. I've been planning these for well over a year now, and I guarantee you that they will answer all of your remaining questions about the who, what, where, and why of Revolution in Motion. Ever wonder what a fuzzy is? Well, strap in because you're about to find out. And I'm going to say without any exaggeration, I've learned so much about this project over the course of conducting these interviews my appreciation for what John, Joey, and the rest of the band have accomplished has only deepened. For all the latest news related to Revolution in Motion, please keep your eyes on DiscoBiscuits.com and the band's official socials. That's at the Disco Biscuits on Instagram, at Disco underscore Biscuits on X, and now Disco Biscuits Official on TikTok. While you're at it, John and I and everyone here at Touchdowns All Day would really appreciate it if you would leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere where you're listening to the show. We love your feedback. We've loved all of the great words of encouragement that we've received since we revived the podcast with episode 50. But most importantly, those five-star reviews help new listeners find us. And if you're liking what you're hearing with these new episodes, please consider sharing an episode with a friend. Maybe it's somebody who's never heard the Biscuits before, a, an old school fan who's fallen off tour. The Biscuits have so much going on right now. There's so much energy and enthusiasm around the band. This is the time. Got to strike when the iron is hot, guys. And we've got to use this opportunity to bring new people into the fold. 
In mere days, the Biscuits set out on their 35, yes, 35 show Why We Dance Tour, coast to coast, covering the nation. Shows are selling out, and I'm seeing people make some crazy offers for tickets. I think I saw someone offering a classical set on vinyl for bolter tickets. Guys, don't get shut out. Head over to discobiscuits.com slash shows and pre-buy your tickets. Stop being wooks. We're all grown-ups at this point. Buy your tickets in advance. Not only does it ensure that you get to see the show, but it helps out the band with the promoters. We love sellouts. We love showing that there is this avid, fervent demand for the Disco Biscuits. This helps us get the band booked, helps the promoters know what they have in store. So it's a great way to translate your fandom and your passion for the Biscuits into something that can actually positively benefit the band. I'll tell you what I did this year, guys. After last year's debacle at the Roxy, where so many people were turned away because they didn't get their tickets in time, I bought a bunch of extra tickets to the Fonda Theater Show on February 1st in Los Angeles. I'm going to give one to my neighbor. I'm going to give one to my homie who's been hearing me talk about the biscuits for ages. I'm going to give one to a girl from Survivor who's been hearing about the biscuits. I'm going to give one to one of the guys from work. This is what we need to do. I'm going to encourage you guys. I'm going to challenge you guys to do the same. The only way to get this cult to critical mass is if we go out and recruit new members. That's your assignment for this tour, guys. Get two of your friends to drop out of school or quit their jobs or get a divorce or whatever so that they can go on tour with the Biscuits. That's what you need to do. Now, you've been hearing me tout the VIP experience for the last few episodes. The benefits are myriad. Early access to the venue. You get to be there for sound check. You get a special poster. You get a laminate. You get a lanyard. And you get to be a part of that group photo with the band that is eventually going to turn into that coffee table book. If you want to go to Boulder at this point, the VIP package is your only option. And that's going to become the case for more and more shows as the tour progresses. So head over to discobiscuits.com slash shows. And while you're there, make sure you find the link at the bottom of the page that says follow the Disco Biscuits. Here's what you do. You click on that. You get notified the minute new dates get announced. That way you don't get shut out of the next special show. And uh, guys, the next special show, you do not want to miss this one. Okay, with all that out of the way, let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, some words that I have been waiting to say for a very long time. I present to you the first of our exclusive four-part Touchdowns All-Day miniseries on the Disco Biscuits new space opera, Revolution in Motion. Guys, we are once again in Barber's studio, an undisclosed location outside of Philadelphia. I am here with John Gutwillig and Joey Friedman, the songwriting team behind. What is it now? 20 new compositions, 21 new compositions in the last two years. Yeah, t- 21, but one of those Nick wrote with uh, John and Alex Mazur, and me and John have wrote, well, John, Aaron, and I, and Mark, too. I mean, we've all been uh, collaborating on some of them, but 20, 
20 if you include Friend Like Steve. Okay, 20, including Friend Like Steve. So, Joey, welcome back to Touchdowns All Day. I would like to invite you all to come with me on a little bit of a journey into the history of this partnership. In our last episode, we heard about some of the most recent work that John and Joey have done, culminating in the three new songs we heard over the New Year's run. Today, we're going to wind back to 2021, and we're going to take you through the steps that have brought us to the present, how this collaboration got off the ground, where the idea for a new rock opera came from, the songwriting process that produced the 14 songs that compose the rock opera. We'll also get into a little bit of the mythology behind the songs and the stories that John and Joey have been uh, creating. We should do that because people are assuming things and they're they're trying to discern it all from the lyrics. And as much as the lyrics do tell the story, story is larger and more more uh, detailed than we could possibly get into the lyrics of 14 songs. Yes. So think of this and the next few episodes in this series as being the kind of accompaniment, cliff notes, commentary track, what have you, to accompany the rock opera. Hopefully this will deepen your appreciation of the story and help you to understand how this entire project came to be. I'm going to start things out in April of 2022. Um, I hopped in Joey's car with Joey and his partner Dre to get a ride to the Mission Ballroom. And Joey said, I want to play you something. And proceeded to play for me the first demo that I heard of Plan of Attack, another Plan of Attack. One of the songs that he was working on, he explained to me that he and Barber were working on a rock opera together and he wanted me to be one of the first people to hear some of it. And I have to acknowledge, Joey, I have to admit now, with hindsight, I realized how wrong I was. But in the moment, my first thought was, Oh, this guy is crazy. There's no way <laughs> Barber is going to write a song with him. And even if he did, it's going to be terrible. By the time we pulled into the lot at the Mission Ballroom, I was saying, attack, attack. And I haven't stopped for going on almost three years now. Joey, what in the world inspired you at this phase in your life to not only decide that you want to start writing rock songs, jam band songs, that not only a rock opera, but that you were going to work with the guy who wrote Magellan and Mindless Dribble and fill in the blanks of the rest of John's extremely impressive catalog that you were going to become his collaborator and lyricist. Well, first, I appreciate your confidence in me, Max. That feels good. <laughs> um, I, I think if I would have thought about it, it may not have happened. Uh, there's a line in One Chance to Save the World that says, uh, you got to believe it just came to us and you know. <laughs> and I think that couldn't be more true about how this came to be. Um, I'll take you back to August uh, 21st, 2021. They were playing a drive-in show at Swansea, New Hampshire. And uh, it was in the middle of COVID. And the show was over and Dre and I went backstage and there was a little trailer backstage and John and Mark were in the trailer. And I said, I thought it was a really good show. It was a good show. And I said such to John, Hey man, that was a good show. And his reply to me was, yeah, it was good. And we're playing good, but we need new songs. And I just casually threw out, why don't you write another rock opera? 
And he kind of replied, well, I, I just don't have a story to write about. And in the moment, it, I, I had this idea that, I, and I just blurted it out. I said, why don't you write a story where the band is central characters in the story? And he said, well, that's a pretty good idea. And I just started kind of, my brain started running in the moment. And I, 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 I thought about they were going to play in the caverns underground in November. And then I got thinking about playing underground and it led me to the Nokia theater. Now the palladium theater. And I mean, this is all happening fast in my head in seconds. And I, I recalled on new year's, I know they just played at the palladium on the 28th, but on a new year's Eve, when you go to the palladium or the Nokia theater, it's like crazy Times square on new year's. You had to go to through police barricades and there's people everywhere and police everywhere. And you got to show them your ticket and get to the next checkpoint and it's craziness, you know, it's, it's Times Square on New Year's. But when you come up at 3 p.m., 3 a.m., Times Square is closed to, for cleaning. So the Nokia Theater lets out in this desolate Times Square and it feels, feels like another world. Yeah. And I, so I said to John, I said. Especially because it's totally lit. Yes. You know, it's like Times, the light from Times Square is in every crevice of the street and it's three or four in the morning and you expect it to be dark and you walk outside and it's completely swept and clean and totally lit. And it does feel like you are on another planet or something like that. Yeah. And so, so I kind of blurt out, what about if the band goes underground to play a new year show in times square and the world is one way. And when they come up, the world has forever changed. And John looks at me, he's like, that's a good idea. And then he says, how has it changed? And we were like, apocalypse, climate change, alien invasion. <laughs> and he was like, oh yeah, alien invasion. So it wasn't like it was, it wasn't like let's write a space opera. It was let's put the band as a central character of the story. They come up the world's different. How is the world different? Alien invasion. And we sat there for 45 minutes about, and we just, you know, in improv comedy, they have this concept of yes end. And John and I have been doing this for years when we joke around, like John says something, uh, you know, completely off the wall and you just, you, you take it and you add to it. Right. And we create these great long jokes from it. And that's what we did. What, you know, and, and when we walked out of the trailer, we had intergalactic ruler has a black sheep son who crashes his spaceship through a wormhole, comes to earth, abducts the band on new year's, takes him back to his home planet. And then they bring the, 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 the music of the disco biscuits to their home planet. We already, we knew that the, the aliens didn't have hands and that they became <laughs> obsessed with the band. They, they, we knew that the world they came from in this time, we knew that the world that they came from was electric. So they didn't have hands because they had wires coming out of their arms that conduct electricity and they loved electronic music, but had never heard live Tronica. And so that when they captured the biscuits and they see them playing this music that kind of sounds like electronic music, but with these hands that they're now obsessed with, they immediately decide, Hey, this is my, this is how this black sheep son is going to prove his worth to his, at the time it was the King, but now it's a queen. Um, and, and that all happened in 45 minutes. <laughs> and I called Steve when I left and I was like, I think John and I just had a moment, you know, it'll probably not go anywhere. Steve Martocci, founder of Splice, great friend of the band and the community. Yeah. John and I's best friend. And, and, and I, I went home and I just started putting a lot of thought into the story. And about two weeks later, I didn't talk to John right away and I didn't hit him up. 
But two weeks later, I get a text from John and it said, tell me more about this space opera. <laughs> and I'm, I'm interested to know what he was thinking yes. during that time period. And I just started ripping off text messages like blah, 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 blah. blah. And he didn't, he didn't respond right away. And I, I paused. I was like, just checking in. Are you, does any of this resonating with you? And he's like, this is awesome. So John, most of the time when you get that conversation 3 a.m. after the show, you you hope that the next day no one remembers you had it because you've probably <laughs> said yes to some business plans or other things that you have no intention of following through on. But somehow this really hooked you. And a few weeks later, you go back to Joey and, and you are interested in hearing more. Do you remember his initial pitch? Do you remember that moment and why this out of all the crazy ideas that get pitched to you backstage is the one that stuck? Well, the, the situation for me was I did not want to write a pandemic song. I wrote an album of I Just Had a Baby, Isn't He So Cute? I didn't want to put that out. Uh, I didn't want to put that on stage. It's just too personal. And I just don't think that that style of music would fly for the Disco Biscuits. And so I'm sitting in, in my studio during the pandemic and I'm just like going through all the loops that I have. And I just can't believe how many of them there are that are just pure fire, that are just going to be great. I mean, there's just so much. And so th I think what I said to Joey when we had the original conversation was, was I, I probably said something along the lines of, I have more music than I've ever had in my entire life. And I don't really have anything to say over the top of it that is going to get me motivated to write enough lyrics to, to have all these songs have lyrics. You know, maybe I'll get one song or another one, but I have, you know, hard drives filled with loops right now and they're all good enough to make it to stage. And so we were putting things to stage that were like instrumentals. I think at that same New Hampshire show, we played an instrumental song that I have some lyrics to, I think it's called funk ditty. And then we were, so we were bringing stuff to stage, but they were instrumentals and they weren't flushed out songs. And I needed to get into the process and I solved this problem with the hot air balloon. And I think we discussed that. And I was like, it's the same problem. Um, but when Joey was told me they don't have hands, when we were riffing on the story, and he, we were just taught, we were just like having fun. Like, I didn't even think anything of it. We were just having a good laugh. Like, it seemed like, you know, this was a fun thing to talk about after the show. Nobody ever wants to talk about songwriting. Everybody wants to talk about weed or t-shirts <laughs> or the security. Like, all things that I really have no interest in. Like, the security doesn't mess with me. <laughs> I eat gummies. I don't smoke weed. And I don't generally fit into the t-shirts because they're usually too small for me. So it's just like one of those things where finally somebody was sitting backstage talking about music with me. And I was like excited to have that conversation. Um, mind you, it was a pandemic. So it wasn't like I was having people over to the studio during the week. I wasn't. So, and I was spending a lot of time trying to get live stream the band during the pandemic. So I wasn't having the kind of musical conversations I was looking forward to. And when Joey said the thing, they don't have hands, then it was like, oh, now these are unique, interesting alien creatures that need to have a world. They need to exist because that's an interesting view. Like in my point of view, 
if you think about evolution and you think about how many Earth-like spherical objects there are in the universe or the universes, and you think, is there another intelligent life out there? Uh, I think the chance, like everybody thinks they're exact copies of humans. I think the chance that they end up to be humans pretty small. I mean, if the dinosaurs didn't go extinct, Earth would be filled with dinosaurs right now. There would never be a human. And I just thought it was interesting that he had basically evolved this creature that never had hands. When a hand, the opposable thumb, and the ability to grasp things is what makes a human a human. Like Without the opposable thumb, a lot of people think you don't get humans at all. And so... I just thought it was interesting that the one human characteristic that's so important to us was missing from this depiction of these aliens. And yet they're more highly advanced than us. They can come to our planet. They can freeze our, our cities. They can, you know, be this greater technological species. And yet at the same time, they can find something beautiful and amazing and seeing humans, uh, and I, I, that's always been my big problem with alien takeover stories is that the aliens don't seem to ever care about humans or like humans at all. And I feel like in this sense, they had a real reason to root for the humans and enjoy the humans. And so when Joey was like this and it was like a, a spitball, like a, and they don't have hands. It was like, <laughs> it was like such just a random solution to what he was seeing as the coming problem in, in the story is that why would they like the, the band, you know, and that, that to me is what sold it to me. And then I went home and I listened to a bunch of the songs and I realized that, uh, this was a really good opportunity for me to get, I had a lot of alien sounding loops and I was like, you know, I could probably do this opera without even having to write anything new, which is never the case and wasn't the case, but I felt like I had enough to just do it straight up. And so that's when I texted him and was like, let's do it because I I could feel the uh, I could feel the val the, the like I don't know what the word is for it I could feel the like story like kind of being being mixed up and stirred and everything I could just feel it kind of happening. John, it's well known that you love science and technology and outer space, aliens, intergalactic travel. Those themes are all over the music you write are either of you sci-fi fans, novels, movies, were there any things that inspired you in the process of coming up with this mythology? Not for me. Not for Uh, me. No, I'm I'm actually not typically a huge sci-fi fan. Um, I think that generally I, I don't like it when worlds are created and there are just no rules to the world and people can do whatever they want, however they want. Um, the story to me was less about space and more about um, the characters, right? This concept of, uh, I always liken the captain of the spaceship to Billy Madison, right? Uh, and so that more than anything inspired me, right? He's got this mom who's a queen of this planet. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on this person to take over and prove his worth, but he spent his whole life being enabled and he's kind of a fuck up. And so um, this concept of like, him coming to earth and capturing the disco biscuits is like Billy Madison going and doing all of the grades in, in, in two weeks of grade for me. Um, 
So there's right. th- there's a concept of a relationship between parent, you know, a, a struggling relationship uh, between generations and the pressure that comes with that. Um, for me, also with the disco biscuits that being the central characters in the story, what makes the disco biscuits beautiful is that they play electronic music with instruments, right? And so this concept of these aliens come from an electric world. They're, they have evolved to conduct electricity and so they don't need hands. But when I'm also, I like the concept of you, you, you want what you don't have. Yes. So when they discover earth and they learn about everything on earth and their spaceship and they see hands and, and instruments to them, they're like, Oh my God, this is amazing to us. Um, and, and so it was less about the sci-fi aspect of it and more about the, the characters in it and what, what motivated them. And, and there's a lot of parallels between the aliens and the biscuits, right? Like tons of potential. Um, but ultimately maybe not fool. We had a joke that, that the, the disco biscuits are a band with so much potential. They have to go to outer space to fully reach it. You know, <laughs> um, that's what I thought the tagline of the story was. Yeah, be. was that's funny. <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, generally speaking, and we'll get into this, but the, but the theme of this thing is really, you know, another plan of attack, right? You're, you're going, your life is going one way for the aliens. They're supposed to be out there doing this job and they're just really fucking around in space and making bad decisions. But then they go through a wormhole unexpectedly and they're presented with this opportunity and they lean into that opportunity. And finally they, 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 they've discovered the disco biscuits and bring them to space. And then there's the parallel for the biscuits, you know, they're going along and they've been kind of doing this thing, uh, but maybe stagnating slightly. And the aliens come and they end up going with these aliens and becoming the biggest band in space. And then in real life, right? It, the parallel is, you know, they're kind of doing their thing. They hadn't written a lot of new songs for a while. And then their friend who hasn't ever written a song before has this idea. And rather than saying that's stupid, right? Really leaning into it. And now we've written all these songs together and the band is so rejuvenated and the fans are rejuvenated. We are all having so much fun together. And so that's sort of the overarching theme. And it's less about the fact that they come from space, but that's just kind of the story. So it's a science fiction story, but it's very much grounded in uh, recognizable, relatable human emotions and conditions. And, you know, we'll get into this as we go through the 14 songs on a track by track basis. But as Joey mentioned, there's themes of your relationships with your parents, uh, of unmet potential, of expect the crushing burden of expectations, the allure of getting high with your friends and going on tour. I mean, what is what are the aliens doing in Shocked other than basically going on their version of Biscuits tour? That's exactly right. So there are many layers of metaphors. And like I said, we'll get into all of these. Um, I'm going to keep winding the clock back, however, and taking us further and further away. I want to say that, um, you know, Joey, you have a long history with the band. John, you have a long history with some of this material. Um, People have been noticing or speculating about a new rock opera in the works since at least 2012. I found a thread on fantasy tour where someone said, anyone hear this rumor about Barber having a new rock opera called space taxi or something. Um, in as early as 2012, people were starting to talk about that. Uh, we heard, uh, I think the first 
um, earliest drafts of uh, one of these space opera songs played in a side project called Kick Rocks. We'll hear a little bit of that later in the episode. But uh, I'm going to wind back and, and ask you, John, was there any truth to this rumor that you had it in your mind to come up with a space opera, something called Space Taxi or something like that? Um, and if so, do you recall what your original vision for that project might have been? Well, I had this thought that the the whoever can make FedEx in outer space is going to be really, really wealthy. That it just seemed like even more than the United, even more than on Earth, you you really need a good FedEx to make outer space work, you know, and. And then I was kind of writing music when I had that thought and I came up with that, the space taxi riff, which is the dun, 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 which is the one chance to save the world riff. And I kind of made this weird song where like the riff goes on, like I'm picturing the taxi flying through space and then it stops and it like drops off a package. <laughs> and there's like this big bong, big thing that happens when it drops off the package. When it's backing up so yeah. that it doesn't bang into uh, another space shuttle. Yeah, it was just like, it was so not dancey, but it was, the riff was fire. And then I actually taught that to the band of Kick Rocks and they played it pretty faithfully, even though it was, you know, ridiculously silly. And I just wanted to, the song, and I recognized after a while that after I heard Kick Rocks play, we played it on a boat cruise in New York, and then I went back to listen to the tape, and I was like, this is absurd. <laughs> but I couldn't, like, shake the idea of some of that stuff. And so I just kind of put it away wasn't in a position with the biscuits where I thought that we could work it into something different. And I knew that it had to go somewhere different, but the riff was obviously the most unique and coolest thing. And then, um, you know, it's, it went into my folder of loops that could be written over. You know, I have this constant folders of, you know, loops that are melodic loops that are funky loops that are this and that. And, um, I think the big reason for this space opera was, Hey, let's, let's put some of this stuff to the test. And it was really up to Joey to pick which ones were fire. I, I don't like, I'll like, I'll play loops that I think are good, but I don't like to be the one who chooses the loop that we work over necessarily because it just seems like, uh, you know, there's no validation in that. So it, it's interesting that Joey chose that one. Because he thought it was really cool. I know there's a bunch of fans that really like that one that were psyched about the original Kick Rock song and stuff like that. Joey, talk a little bit about your history with the band. Because, you know, a, a lot of people know you from bumping into you at the shows, being up front, dancing alongside you. You're not just a collaborator. You're also a longtime fan. You've worked for the band in various capacities. You're involved in everything from song composition now to working with Mark on set lists. So I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, where you first discovered the Disco Biscuits and, and the, the role they've played in your life. Yeah. Well, um, to, to start, it started in 1998. I was a junior in high school and I, I didn't see the Biscuits, but the I'm from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and the band had played a free show at Franklin and Marshall College, which I did not go to. But a friend of mine named Joe Dana, who I have lost touch with, I'm not exactly sure where he is, he was out and about 
taking pictures and he stumbled across the show. And uh, so it was 1998, free show at FNM, and somebody handed him a cassette tape. And I'm pretty sure the cassette tape had like Jamelia on it and maybe Little Betty Boop. And I, I don't even remember what else was on it. Somebody actually recently posted a, a picture of this cassette tape on Biscuit's Family or something like that. And he comes into art class during the week and he played it for me. And I think he played me Jamelia and I was, you know, a teenager kid and I, I resonated with the lyrics. Um, and that was it. I, I, I kind of forgot about them. Um, and then when I was a freshman in college, it was the summer uh, at Penn State, summer of 2000, I saw the Disco Biscuits on the awning at the Crowbar. And I remembered them from when I got played this tape and I went to the show. What I didn't know was that they played the whole show with Jordan Chrisman on bass. And during the on, and I had a blast, had a great time. During the encore, John comes out and he says <laughs> something along the lines of, hey, it's been a long six months. Well, it's been a really tough six months, and we'd like to thank all you guys for sticking with us through all those days. Um, we would like to thank Jordan here for being the greatest guy humanly on the planet. And we decided very recently that we just, we just wouldn't be the Disco Biscuits without one Mr. Mark Brown. And I go to the guy next to me. I go, man, what's going on? And the guy's like, he's back. He's back. I was like, who's back? He's like, Brownie's back. I go, who's Brownie? It's like, he's the bass player in the Biscuits, man. I was like, well, then who's that guy? He's like, that's not the guy. That's the other guy. The real guy's Brownie. And I remember looking around and I, I, I kind of like pretended like I knew what was going on. I was like, he's back. It's about time. Yeah. Um, and that was my first show. And I, I, I was in college, you know, I was doing the college thing. So I, I only saw a handful of shows, but I also met little man uh, at Penn state who was a big biscuits fan. And I met a couple, a, a couple other big biscuits fan who kind of indoctrinated me. And then it was the, the Tussie mountain shows in summer. Oh, two. That's when I, I quote unquote, got it. Um, and then I was hooked and I started listening to all the shows. Um, I went abroad in spring Oh three and I had a whole CD book full of biscuit shows. That's when I learned all the songs. So so, you know, it, it, I, don't, I only saw about, I think, three shows between 2000 and summer 02. Um, and then I caught the bug and I started going to as many shows as I could. That's great. What a historic first show for you to be at. And what a great, great memory of seeing that jubilation with Mark coming back to the band, getting to experience that as your introduction to the Live Biscuits experience. Yeah, it was incredible. And then I moved to Philly after I graduated from Penn State. and. Uh, I met Berkowitz and Magner, you know, was dating a girl, a good friend of mine who I went to college with. And, you know, we, the Philly at that time, the band would be hanging out and we played poker together. And I met John playing poker. Um, and it just kind of built from there and we kind of became friends. And then, yeah, I worked for the band for a little bit as an accountant. Um, and then, you know, at life happens and we actually, took a little bit of a break from each other for a little while there in, in the, in the late 2000, you know, I guess 2012 timeframe. Uh, and then we came back together. Um, and we kind of, uh, picked up where we left off and we were all really close, but not on a creative level really. Um, and then this just kind of happened from there. So I feel like we've kind of been through it all together. Um, good and bad. And I think we all really, know each other deeply at this point. And I think 
all of those experiences sort of led us to where we are now. Um, and it's, it's all love and it's, it's fun. And, you know, the writing these songs with, with these guys have been some of the best moments of my life. That's great. John, talk a little bit about your approach to working with others in the songwriting process. Uh, I mean, you've collaborated here and there before Joey with other people, um, most notably with our friend Kevin Abrams on Basis for a Day. That's right. But um, typically you were a one-man show. You know, you, you brought the, the songs to the band. Um, you know, Mark and Aaron and Sammy wrote as well, uh, then Alan. But um, this idea of you working with a collaborator, had you written with other people previously? Did you have uh, any feelings one way or the other about if it worked for you? Yeah, for sure. I've always, I always had an idea that if, to be a composer, you had to like walk around a field in the middle of the night, singing the song over and over again. And that used to work for me. Uh, but there's actually been quite a few collaborators in my career and a lot of them are very sort of unsung like Kevin Abrams and Nasser and, you know, just people who were, you know, basically hanging out, having fun. And I was writing while we were doing that, you know, like Nasser and I were in a, uh, we lived in the same building in Philadelphia and there was a second floor, like little library chill out room. And I set up a computer studio in there and was making music and Nasser hung out and smoked joints the whole time while I did that. And, you know, that's where of Above the Waves came from. And a lot of those like classic moments of like classically music written in that era. And I'm realizing that Nasser was in the room for all of that. And so who knows what effect he was having on the writing because he wasn't a writer and didn't know anything about music, but he was in the room. And so there's something about not being alone when you're writing, because when you're writing music or poetry or whatever, it can be a very lonely job. And so I've always typically collaborated with people who are not musicians. And then I went to LA and tried collaborating with musicians and didn't enjoy the process at all. I just found the LA musicians to be a little bit jaded on how fun the job is. They don't seem to like the job. They don't seem to want to do it unless they're getting paid. They don't seem to think that the music that you're making is going to be a hit. They don't think that their role in the music business um, is, is like cool enough for what I just, I heard it all in the couple of years that I tried to write in LA. I couldn't find a, you know, a, a, I collaborated a little bit with Eric Zane, who's literally one of the most talented people I've ever sat in a studio with, but that was like pay for play type of stuff. And I didn't have enough money to do that indefinitely. Yeah. Um, and so I tried it, but I just was never able to get anything cooking. However, when I work with people who aren't musicians like Lancer or Joey or Nasser or even Kevin Abrams, um, I seem to get great results. And so it's like, I think I just need to hang with somebody cause I'll get the job done if I do. And if I'm in there alone, I will figure out a reason to not do the job. I will like, you know, 
get busy doing something else. I'll get distracted. I'll, you know, end up on Instagram or something like that. And then I won't get any work done. So it does for me really helps. Joey, you mentioned you get that text a few weeks later and the yes ending begins. I know that after that, you start in on your first draft of your first song, roughly September 2021. Talk a little bit about where you started. Blank page in front of you. How do you begin? Uh, I, well, I, I started thinking about the story. I was thinking about the story nonstop, right? Uh, who these characters are what they're about, what they're thinking about, um, you know, really trying to, you know, create this world. And, and that's all I was, I mean, it was, it was pretty much controlling my thoughts and I was in the car and I was thinking about this character um, and I was trying to get the, the captain, right? The Billy Madison type. I was trying to get into his head and what would he be thinking about? Uh, John, can I tell the Paul Abdul story? Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. So I was in the car. When, when is it not okay to tell a Paul Abdul story? So I was in the car and I was thinking about this character and I was thinking, you know, what would he be thinking? Uh, he'd be thinking that he's probably a victim of his circumstances uh, because he's like kind of entitled. He'd be thinking that he's always taking two steps forward, three steps back. And then it just opposite the track yeah in my head i i the i the, the only time i've ever really thought about that phrase was this paula dole song opposite the track and so i'm just driving and i go two steps forward three steps back we'll never get you where you want to go you need another plan of attack your <laughs> ship is ready and your crew has your back we're gonna get you where you want to go we need another plan of attack 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 we're gonna get you where you want to go we need another plan of attack and i was like holy shit i think that's good um and i pulled over <laughs> and i kind of recorded it so i didn't forget it um and obviously the uh, we changed it to tripping through wormholes just to get things on track but generally speaking that's the first thing i ever wrote and i built the song around it um in my head around a melody in my head of which um a lot of it didn't make it, but a lot of the lyrics, especially in the second verse and in the bridges, you know, never had a chance to give them what they're looking for. Can you hear them now in the groups they sing your praise? That all came from that first version. And we were at the Mirage in, in 2021, September 21. And I, John was in a conversation. I kind of was standing around waiting for <laughs> to finish the conversation. And I pulled him into a corner and I sing this song to him with no music. And by the end of the attacks, he was kind of fist pumping and singing with me, attack, attack, attack. And he was at the end of it, he's like, we're going to write a rock opera together. And I was like, okay, let's do this. And so we had like a zoom planning session at that point we maybe had, I had like a couple song titles, or at least I had the narrative beats of the story. Um, and John played me a couple things, but then it was really Thanksgiving of 21 where I came here for the first time. And John had the, again, he had these files full of loops and we started listening to these loops and the ones that I felt resonated with me, I kind of started, well, oh, that would be good for this part of the story and that would be good for this. So he played the plan of attack loop and I started singing the, I started singing what I had written over that loop and it's different than what it is, what it was, but, um, he played me the space taxi loop, which I, I had no idea about those rumors of a space opera. I had no idea he even played that song uh with kick rocks until later i just he played it and i was like this sounds like the kind of music aliens would like yeah 
And I started, I, we freestyled. I, I'm sure John has the voice of one chance to save the world over that melody. Um, the, the loop for shock came from that session. The loop for, um, uh, tourists came from that session. Oh, there was a moment. There was like a moment, um, in Syracuse in, in 20, 2019, where we were backstage goofing around and John was singing, do you want to step on the rocket ship? Uh, and we were just joking around and there was no point to it at all. And we were kind of, I even like riffed on it a little bit. Um, but when we came back to 2021, I was like, dude, we have a spot for your rocket ship song yes. from Syracuse. He's like, amazing. <laughs> so there's going to be a part where the aliens are going to capture these humans and they're going to rhetorically sing, do you want to step on the rocket ship? So we brought that in. Um, and so we picked, we picked, I think, you know, the loops that got us through the first couple of songs. We also thought of the, the fuzzy, the, the fuzzies, which ended up becoming a, a huge breakthrough for a lot of reasons in the story. <laughs> uh, do we want to talk about the fuzzies? Now? Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. When we first, the first thing we did, which I thought was the most fun was we pulled up a, a, a music sequencing software and we put blank location markers in for what we thought all the songs would be. And then we went through the, the loops and grabbed loops and filled out what the rock opera would be. And we basically got all the way through it where I probably have that file somewhere where it's like, there's a, the loop for the songs. Things got rearranged a little bit, but basically you had all the song stops along the way kind of mapped out. And I had all the music and we matched the music to the, to the tent poles of the, uh, of the opera. And at the end of it, we had a giant Ableton file with loop after loop after loop after loop. And you could feel how this, how the thing was going to move. And the only, I think we used almost all of the loops in there, except for one, I know we didn't use, but the rest of them, I'm pretty sure we used. And it, it basically we sketched out, the whole opera in one day. Cause I came in with a bunch of music and you came in with a good idea of how the story flowed. And it gave us this ability that by the time you left that couple days in the studio, I was looking at the file being like, well, I can kind of even listen to this, you know, like I could, I could like sing a little bit of each section and then, Hey, this is kind of, you know, this is kind of real at this point. And, and what I always loved was after that session, your confidence in that this was going to work. I mean, in your mind, it was already done. Like we talked to, we talked to Aaron uh, backstage after the Montclair Thanksgiving shows and we told him the whole story and John's like, it's done basically. We, we got it. And Aaron, John leaves the room and Aaron's like, did you actually write any songs? And I was like, no, he's like, okay. <laughs> but, but, uh, uh, you know, we talk about parallels. Uh, there's there's a parallel in the story, and we'll we'll talk more about this. But in Shocked, it's sung by the captain, and he's been doing fuzzies and getting shocked, and he's kind of he's kind of lost, right? He he doesn't have a purpose. And then in Freeze, you know, he's been clear headed. He hasn't been doing shocks, and he's now got a purpose, and he's very confident that he's got a plan for the future. And it's not all that different than the way John was in the trailer. You know, John you know, had these songs, but he didn't know what to do with them. He was kind of uh, struggling to find a voice for these songs. But by the time we got through the wormhole or through that planning session on Thanksgiving of 21, it was like the light bulb had clicked. He was like, I've got what I need to get where I want to go. 
And from that point on, there was never a doubt that we were going to get this thing done. And it was kind of amazing to me because I still had doubts that we would maybe get it done. But he was completely confident that this was going to happen. That's great. Yeah, because in my mind, the loop is the inspiration. The loop, and and that's why I'm always like, if you're going to sing a song, even if you're jamming over Paula Abdul in your head, you got to record it because that's the inspiration. The rest is just perspiration. You can do the perspiration any day of the week. It's the inspiration that has to join you when it decides it's willing to join you. And I knew we had enough inspiration to get through the entire story. So the question was at that point, you know, how do we just get the perspiration done? And that's why I was so confident. Cause I was like, this is, this is just a matter of execution at this point. So there's one more milestone along the way before we're going to dive into the tracks. And that is your first official collaboration song friend like Steve. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's still maybe the best song we've ever written. <laughs> um, with despite what anybody may think, but a, a, around the same time that we, in November, when we had the planning session, Steve uh, had this blowout birthday party and he had booked the biscuits to play it. And Steve's this extremely exceptional human being. He's got kind of, he's, he's created companies and he's funny and he's amazing and he's got everything you could really want. And it's hard to get somebody like that a gift for their birthday. And, um, I sort of had this idea that I could write him a song. And we, there's a history of us writing something. Uh, Magna wrote a song for Berkowitz for his wedding. And um, there have been sort of other songs like that in the past. And so I came up with uh, the idea of the, I, 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 I honestly, there's a voice memo of me singing the first version of Friends Like Steve. And I'm like whistling along with the melody in my head. And uh, I pitched it to Aaron and John. And they were like, this is a great idea. Um, and so we spent the net we really didn't work on the rock opera very much between thanksgiving and march um what we did was we were working on friend like steve um we picked a melody for it i created a first draft of the lyrics and then john started adding his spin to it and we didn't even do it together it was all over text message and the phone um but we had this idea that we were not going to tell steve about it and we were going to let everybody only about there were about 400 people at the party i think only about 100 of them had seen the disco biscuits before so the concept was we were going to teach the whole party the song and the only person at the party that didn't know about the song was steve <laughs> and we were all going to show up at a certain spot at a certain time <laughs> and sing this song to him with the band <laughs> I mean, we went all the way up to the wire, but we knew we had a great song and everything was executed to perfection. I mean, just the guy was 
completely blown away. Everybody was in a circle around him singing it. And I remember, you know, John and I had this moment when it was done. Uh, we kind of just looked at each other like he was still on stage. And, and I remember he just looked at me because we did it. And I was like, we did it. And it was like that sort of set the tone. We had successfully executed a plan together um, and, and, and wrote a song together at the same time. And that kind of, I think, and we, we started writing the rock opera um, like two weeks later. A proof of a successful concept, your ability to collaborate and execute and to deliver on a pretty tight timeline. Well, right. that brings us to the first song of the opera, the first song that Max, I heard. Look at Max, though, dude. Look at Max, nailing it home. <laughs> That's the main point, though, is that the birthday was a specific day. There was a timeline where the, the diva machinations of an artist or an artistic troupe had to be tossed in the garbage. Yes. So that a moment like he's talking about could get created. A deadline is a amazing taskmaster. Yeah. And it's really, that was a time where I could feel the diva machinations coming in and out of the writing process. And, um, and I, I, I just was, I love the fact that we got it done. Um, yeah. It's interesting that, that, that you point that out. So plan of attack, Joey, you played me that first demo in April. I think it was on April 9th, um, on our way to the mission. Yep. And like I said, I couldn't get the chorus out of my head after that. Um, talk to us a little bit about how you took it from that little nugget inspired by MC Scat Cat and Paula Abdul <laughs> and translated that not only into a song, but a song that establishes a lot of the mythology um, and, and really sets the stage. Not the first song in the rock opera. But we're going to talk about it first. The chapter that we are covering in this particular episode includes Shocked, Plan of Attack. Yes, yeah, it's Shocked, Wormhole, Twisted in the Road, Plan of Attack. That's the order of the first four songs. Sorry, I have it twisted around in my notes. It was that way, though. The, the way that it was Shocked, Another Plan of Attack, and then we changed it. Okay. So No, no it wasn't. It wasn't? No, no, no. Well, we didn't shocked. We didn't know shocked was going to be the first song until you came up with Rolling Through Outer Space with my brothers. And then we realized that shocked was the first song, but we knew they had to go through the wormhole in order for plan of attack to happen. And they had to go through the wormhole for in order for twisted in the road to happen. So it was always the wormhole twisted in the road plan of attack. But then we wrote shocked. And when John said rolling through outer space with my brothers, I was like, that needs to be the first line of the rock opera. And we made shocked first, but we didn't write the songs in order. Um, we, we wrote the first weekend of writing was plan of attack, one chance to save the world and then twisted in the road. Um, but plan of attack was first because that was where we had the most fleshed out song. And we already knew the loop because John had played me the loop and I kind of, we kind of freestyled the attack attack. We need another plan of attack over it. Um, so when we, when we met to write, we started there and he just started working in Ableton. And again, when he works in Ableton, the, the music is looping. Um, and the first weekend it was just us. Magner joined us the, for every session following, but this weekend was just him and I, and I just started going through my lyrics that I had and, and figuring out which ones were good. And I, and I think I wrote the, 
the, the chorus stayed virtually the same with the exception of tripping through wormholes just to get things on track. And then we wrote the second verse first. Can you hear them now? In the streets, they grew up and sing your praises. You became exactly what they were always hoping for. On this night of dance, the people drink in jubilation. We strike first and hit them when they're at their most vulnerable. And, and really it was like, we knew that this song was like the first big turning point, right? Like up until this song, they were messing around, they were crashing through wormholes. And this song is sort of when um, they the pitched the, you know, the first mate of the ship, the captain's in a coma because he's plugged into the ship, his circuits get fried um, and he wakes up from his coma. And by this point, his crew have learned all about earth. They've learned about the hands. They've learned about the people. They've learned about all the people in New York city on new year's Eve. And they're basically pitching to the captain. Hey, this is our chance. Let's stop getting high and let's do our job, which is to go out and find foreign life. Um, and that the lyrics in that second verse are basically like, can you hear them now at home? Uh, you've reached They're They're so proud of you for finally doing what you're supposed to do. Um, and the people on earth are going to be drunk celebrating on New York city. So let's go get them now. And uh, what also came out of that first session, John just kind of freestyled, oh, this, mar the, oh, this marble, she's so blue. Um, and the second he said that, I had other lyrics that were the legacy that's escaped you. We finally had the chance to give them void. So he kind of sang that line out of nowhere over a whole new melody. And then immediately it, it allowed me to bring in these lyrics that I had. So we, we left that session with the second verse, the chorus, and the first bridge and we didn't have a second bridge or a first verse or an ending that would come later. And, and Alex Mazur helped me with the first verse, but, but that's kind of that first day where we, we had, we had a structure with a verse, a bridge and a chorus and confidence. We were really excited after that first day because we had just, you know, we, we really could just see that we were starting to, I think we were both starting to really feel the story in our bones at that point. Um, and this was our first successful demo. Um, and so, so yeah, but that song is really about, you know, they went through this wormhole there. They learn about this new planet and they decide that they are going to lean into this opportunity and change the way that they're going about their, their lives to, to hopefully reach their full potential. So I've got an early draft of the lyrics up in front of me. Uh, and, and from the get go, the major themes of the entire narrative are present some things that are present that aren't in the final version. 3042, not a lot to show for it. Ask yourself, is it a legacy you're yearning for, a father's love? Now, Joey, uh, you know, it would be unnatural for me as someone who, as a, for a profession my entire life, has interpreted art as a film studies professor and a writer and a critic to not look at lyrics like these. And wonder, is there any element of autobiography in this piece? Is there any element of taking themes from your own life and experience and bringing them to the characters and to the page? Not really. Um, I was really trying to embody the character. Um, I had a pretty good childhood. I mean, I, I think there was maybe pressure on me to succeed, but I, I, I don't, I, I really was trying to not put myself in the story. I was really trying to make it about the biscuits and these aliens. And I was really trying to, I have always been good at putting myself in the shoes of other people. 
Um, and I think it's why I'm able to get along so well with the biscuits and I've been chief of staff for company. I, I, I can, I'm good at sort of like putting myself in that perspective. And so I was really thinking of that. Now, when I first wrote that song, my idea was that they were like really old um, yeah. and they hadn't done anything yet. That kind of went by the wayside. Um, but or originally the intergalactic ruler was a king. And it wasn't until John actually, I, I don't think he was thinking about it when he wrote it, but when we wrote the chorus of One Chance to Save the World, he wrote the verse, or the chorus, uh, uh, you can, uh, you got the moves in whatever direction, you gotta believe it just came to us and you know. And when he said, you got the moves in whatever direction, I was like, in my, and I, we knew they were singing that song to the ruler, I was like, the, the queen on the chessboard can move in any direction. Uh, and so that line, if she's a queen, becomes way better. And I also wanted a woman in the story, right? You know, it, it, it I didn't know how to, you know, the, the aliens, we try not to get into sex or race or any of that too much. But I thought it was important to represent, you know, a little bit of femininity in the story. So the idea that the intergalactic rumor was a queen uh, came sort of as a byproduct of this line that he wrote. And that happened a lot throughout the story. We would write yeah. something and then what we wrote would inspire a whole new element of the narrative. John, I know you've got up an early draft. One of the first that I've heard, and there are some, I think interesting differences in the composition. Maybe you could play for us a little bit of that early demo of plan of attack. Of course. Right into I haven't listened to this in a while. It's fire. It is. Yeah, so this is straight techno orchestra type of demo. at this point. Streets thick. 
Yeah, so this one is um, just, you know, it's just really, it's, in my mind, it's just, it's just some generic techno, you know? It's, um, we're just writing over some stuff that, like kind of some basic techno-y stuff, but at the time, I was, all right, so this is over different changes than the we do it. And that was really, you just, you had a moment where you're like, I just want to sing. You like had a feeling, right? And like that happened a lot throughout this process. And that's what you really brought. I mean, you brought all, <laughs> obviously brought a lot more than that, but you would have these moments where you're just like, I just feel like we should do this. And he would sing something and would end up becoming this beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, my thing was they're looking at earth through some kind of viewport and it's just a big blue marble. And they're just like looking at it like, how cool is this thing we found? It's got water and there's people. Like imagine if you saw a planet in a spaceship, before you go down there, you would <laughs> look through the viewport and like call it something simple and dumb and childlike, like a little blue marble. You know, you, it, you would have your childlike wonder of what it is. And so that's kind of why I thought that was going to be a good lyric. And that's literally in... You know, we have like a little bit of the hook here and we have that. Yep. And I mean, you know, when he said that, I was, you know, I had the line in the original song, The Legacy That's Escaped You. So it went perfect with it. And it is his legacy. Oh, right. The, we have the alien chant ending uh, on this original. Oh, we this took was, that out. Uh, what's the Leonardo DiCaprio movie that we were... We, I forgot about the alien <laughs> chant. Oh, it hit your chest? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's what we were thinking. We were both stopping our chest with our fist when we were doing that in the studio. I don't know why we left that part out. All right, so this is called version two. So here we have the melody. Is that listen? I do. Yeah. Oh, so the okay. So that that's melody. That's when we brought Magner in. Well, that that do 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 do. That's the chest stomping thing, right? It's that's what I was calling the steel drum. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, and that's just, I think I just played that on the little keyboard. It's definitely the kind of line that I would play because it doesn't follow the changes, you know. All right, so it's got a little flow. This version's got a little bit more flow. A little faster. It still isn't the original lyric. Yeah. It's not in the song anymore. We should bring that line back. Uh. And then we added those changes there. What was the origin of the the new first verse the can you hear me now so we 
we had finished, we had we had come up with an ending of the song that we talk about the moment, these magical moments. Um, and one of them was the when Magner. I had been thinking about how to end the song over, you know, a lot over uh, several months. And Magner, we were in here, and Magner started playing the changes, the major changes um, over the piano, and. I like, uh, you know, if you'll notice in a bunch of the songs that I do this, but I like, you know, figuring out what the best things you said in the song were and sort of repackaging at the end. Yes. Um, and so that's essentially what the end of Plan of Attack is. It's, it's taking the chorus, but we take out the going to get you where you want to goes. And then we have this really triumphant moment where we say going to get you where you want to go, which I thought was. I remember when we when we sang it the first time and I had chills and I think everybody had chills like what better thing to sing to a crowd on stage than we're going to get you where you want to go. And it's the crew singing to the captain, you know, trust in us. We're going to get you where you want to go if you just do this with us. So we had the whole song, but the first verse and uh, a good friend of and, I, and we were in New Orleans. Uh, the band played in New Orleans uh, before uh, in, in, in May of 22. And uh, I told, and Alex Mazur was there, who's a good friend of ours, and he, uh, he's a po poetic guy, and he's worked on some stuff with John before, and I, I told him about it. And uh, when I got back, um, he wanted to hear more about it, so I, we had a call, and I, I kind of told him the story, and I said, hey, I'm really struggling with the first verse of Plan of Attack. And I kind of explained to him what was going on, that the, the captain was, you know, he had been in a coma from going through this wormhole and being plugged into the spaceship and his circuits were fried. And basically like, you, you know, the, he has to be told sort of what's happened uh, by his crew. And Alex wrote up some lyrics and, and for the most part, that verse is all, you know, I made some, some slight tweaks to it. But he really helped me say what I was thinking, uh, and really, I mean, what I thought he wrote was beautiful. Um, and 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 once he once he did that, I felt really good about the song, and uh, really helped us complete complete the song. That's great. Uh, this is the first ending. This is the real ending, I think. Yeah, we're able, this is where, this is obviously after a session with Aaron, because you can hear like a lot of the keyboards changing and all the chords changing. Yeah, and, and Aaron really helped us with this part. Yeah, and you can hear like the B flat is now this primary part, that melody, that kind of like whistle synth in the background is a line that Aaron played. I actually kind of remember like this was one of those things where like I was really sold on the we're going to get you where you want to goes and like John was busy doing other stuff and it was kind of the end of the day and I was like John you got to sing the we're going to get you where you want to goes and he was like fine all right all right and then he did it and then he was like oh man that's fire yeah because I, I don't necessarily like sometimes I'm doing stuff when they can't when they come up with the good part and I don't know why it's good or what exactly is coming out of their face right now? Because I've like <laughs> been like deep in the, the like sometimes I'm like putting compressors on cymbals and stuff, and like I'm listening to tiny, tiny little things. And so sometimes it's hard to come up for air, and you just got to trust the process that everybody is trying to make the best song possible. And this song for me is all trust the process because. 
you know, I've written a lot of songs in my life and yelling attack over and over and over again. <laughs> and let's get them when they're vulnerable. These are like lyrics that, you know, when you've written hundreds of songs, those are lyrics. You don't, you don't screw around with these words. You don't make songs like this, but Joey and writing like one of his first songs is, was just all in on that. And so my role as, you know, my role is not to like old man, a good idea out of the room. You know what I mean? Not to be like, well, I've done this and blah, 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 blah. You have to. Yes. And And I was really talking to the music gods during this song. I was like, could you have chosen a set of lyrics (laughs) that is like more opposite for us to make the first song of this? Like, could you have given a different song to him? Like, why, why are we doing this exact set of lyrics? At least it wasn't freeze, <laughs> get your hands up. Yeah, so. yeah, there's been a couple of moments. But in all of those moments, I don't really let those kind of things out into the session because I don't want to spoil the session. And it ends up that, like, if you have those kind of thoughts, that's your own stuff that you're putting on to something, you know, and, like, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. And I've gotten a lot better at my timing with John, <laughs> you know, like, from the first song till now. Like, I know when to not pitch a new idea to him you know when he's when he's busy and he's focused you know i'm not tapping him on the shoulder hey john John, John, you know like i was maybe in the beginning but also we we knew we when we sent these songs to aaron and mark um they both responded so positively to them like right off the bat with like i love this and so uh that gave us a lot of early um early confidence so yeah so it was the fourth fourth song in the in in the rock opera the first song we wrote, we finished it over the course of a couple sessions. Some songs came to us in one day and were basically done. Um, this one took us a couple days to flesh out. Uh, but um, I, I love it. John, did you know what you had on your hands when it was done? Because Plan of Attack, uh, out of all of the songs in the rock opera, it's the song that's been played the second most, 30 times, only second twisted. Um, it was the second song to get the inverted treatment, as far as I know. Um, it has been a set piece. It has become a heavy hitter within the rotation. Was it apparent to you when you were working on it or shortly thereafter uh, that this would be a big Disco Biscuit song? No, no. Not, and, you know, not until we played it live in front of, I think maybe a show that you were at, we played, I believe this song in California in the field at high Sierra music festival. Uh, that it, was about a month or two after you debuted it. Yeah. At the debut, I felt pretty good about it, but we hadn't debuted a song in so long that I was just like happy to have a debut under my belt. And I thought it was cool. I thought the song was fun to play. It was very hard. There's a lot of changes. I was very uncomfortable with them. There's some fourth chords in there, which I still don't really know how to play. I just kind of play two notes and move on and I have to sing all that stuff. And the song was a difficult song for me because I had a bad process for learning my own songs at this time. And this was the song 
that illuminated that to me, which is like your system of learning your own stuff is subpar. Is this your annotations where you would write these kind of cryptic notes to yourself describing what part came next? Yeah, yeah. There's, I've seen those. They were completely nonsense. What was your note for One Chance to Save the World? It was the, uh, you had some crazy notes for One Chance to Save the World. Like Dr. The Dre, it was like a Dre. Uh, oh yeah, we we thought that that one keyboard sample sounded like it was in a, was from a Dr. Dre song, like a hip hop song. Yeah, for sure. So you'd essentially have a piece of like paper with Sharpie on it, and it yeah. would be like Dr. Dre part yeah. into breakdown into verse one. That's right. Yeah, and it was all because during the pandemic we couldn't rehearse, so we would be walking out on stage playing these songs without any real rehearsal. And then I realized that my job, having to remember the lyrics, the guitar part, cueing the band, listening to everybody else so I can give them all feedback about how their performance is going, and also pulling it off in front of the crowd, uh, my, my procedure was subpar. And the one thing I did do correct for this song is let the song come into existence without you know, saying we can't say attack over and over again or any of these other things that when I saw the fans didn't care at all, you know, on version two or three live where I'm playing the song saying attack to these fans there in the, and everybody's like, I love this. I love this. And at that point I realized I did the one thing correct with this song that you have to do when you're writing, which is don't, don't kill the session, you know, just let the song live, let the thing be what it's going to be. And just accept it. And that's, I think, what I did right on this session. And then I actually had to sit down here and put the song on repeat with my guitar and a microphone and just sing it and play it. Oh, like I must have done it. There's one day I think I did it 60 times in a row before I took a break. And that's the only way to get the lyrics into your head. And it's the only way to learn this stuff. And that's kind of changed my whole process. And now my whole process has changed for every single song. So this has been a good song on a lot of levels for me. Let's go back to the first song chronologically in the opera. That being Shock. The song that establishes the entire setting, the characters, really lays out a lot of the mythology as well. Uh, I find Shock to be really interesting and it has evolved into quite an amazing set piece. The last few versions of Shocked have dominated the sets that they're a part of. Shocked is interesting to me for one reason, and that is because it contains some of the most simple and on-the-nose lyrics in the entire rock opera, but also some of the most abstract and complex and poetic. It both is exposition, and it's very imagistic. So you have the very on-the-nose metaphor of rolling through outer space with my brothers and getting shocked. And then you have cracks in the windshield, spider every which way. They, start to, they seem to start nowhere, then they shatter the pain. The pressure too much to take, it's better running away. Like, th that song contains so much. Joey, talk about Shocked, where it came from, for, from your standpoint. So we wrote Shocked in April. Um, it was the, I think it was the fifth, the fifth song we wrote, um, fourth or fifth song I wrote, I don't remember what, where in order it came during that weekend. Um, but there was a couple things that led up to shock. First, I got to tell the fuzzy story, um, Please. or I can't tell yeah. shock. Yeah, this, yeah, yeah. this is the appropriate time to start explaining fuzzies, shocks, wormholes, the crystal. Yeah. So, so we always knew that they, 
crashed through a wormhole and that they were they were malcontent aliens. But we didn't know why or how. Um, and when we met over the Thanksgiving session, John has a whole re- book of, or not book, but file or folder of songs that he would sing with River. Um, and he had this song that he went, how many fuzzies are you? And he played it for me. And his exact words were me to me, Joey, I have this song. How many fuzzies are you? He played it to me. He goes, I want to use this lyric in a disco biscuit song. And I don't want to change one word of it. (laughs) How do I do that? And we sat there for maybe two or three minutes in in dead (laughs) silence. And then I was like, I got it. And I was inspired by, I had gone to a birthday party for my, my girlfriend's dad at one point. And like a friend of his was telling a story about how, like when he was in Wisconsin, they, they were all drunk. And he was like, when we would drive home from the bar, the guy with the fewest amount of DUIs would drive home from the bar. But in the, <laughs> in this moment, I was like, what if, what if a fuzzy is a, at, at, at first it was a drink. What if a fuzzy is a drink? And they're all drinking on the spaceship and that is how, or, or doing drugs, it's a drug or a drink and they're doing fuzzies or, and, and, and that, that is ultimately how they end up crashing. Right. And they decide who flies the spaceship based off of who's had the most or least amount of fuzzies. Okay. <laughs> and I, and the so designated driver yeah. is the person who's had the fewest fuzzies. Right. <laughs> so they all go around the spaceship being like, how many fuzzies are you? How many fuzzies are you? This is a mystery that biscuits fans have been trying to solve for more than a year, guys. And here you have it. The answer, how many fuzzies are you is a way of asking, are, are, are you actually okay to drive this? Yeah, exactly. And, and when I said this to should John, we get, should we just get an Uber and come back and get the car tomorrow? Exactly. When I said this to John, he just lit up. It was one of those moments when he was like, <laughs> that is, you figured it out. You, I asked you how to, I asked you how I could do this. And now you've given me what I needed to do it. And so we always knew that the wormhole song would be how many fuzzies are you? Um, but we didn't end up writing it. I think it was the ninth or 10th song we wrote. Um, but after that first session, I was thinking more and more about these characters. And I was like, they're electronic aliens. They're not going to be drinking yeah. on the spaceship. Um, how would an electronic alien get high? And then I was like, they would get shot. And I always like, um, I've always liked one word hooks. Like I like astronaut, how it's a one word hook. And, um, I honestly, I, I thought I was thinking a little bit of like David Bowie, a little bit with fame. Um, and I just, in my head, I was like, shocked, you know? <laughs> and so we had had the loop. It was one of the loops we had picked out, um, over our, 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 our November session. And I just kind of, we, 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 we got, this is the second session. We started playing the loop. I started singing shocked over it. And John immediately said, Hey, I, I like that. And we started writing and I was, um, I w- I'm a Guns N' Roses fan. So I was a little bit inspired by the song Night Train um, because it's sort of that same, like the, the, the idea of this song is they've been getting high. They're at the end of their rope. Something bad is about to happen. Um, and so uh, the lyrics are, uh, you know, and it, it really is on the nose. 420 fever blisters my brain. I'm telling the audience they're doing drugs, right? Yeah. Uh, this ship can go faster, but you'll go insane. They're being reckless. Uh, too amped too. amped is like if, if, if a fuzzy is the joint and getting shocked is getting high, 
getting amped is like getting blitzed, you yeah. know? So it's like if, if a beer is the drink and getting drunk is getting, getting, getting high, uh, getting amped is getting wasted. Right. So yeah. those are like the way that I think about these terms to amp to sense any trouble can't stay in the lanes. We'll get you nowhere, but, or we'll get you noticed someday. So it's like, we're on a ship, we're acting crazy. We're really fucked up and something bad's about to happen. And then the second verse, uh, Baby, crack- hold on, hold on. Oh, one yeah, second. Go ahead. There was a concept that we were, we were banding back and forth, which was that when they drive the ship, they, they, they connect electronically to the ship itself and they can make the ship go faster and slower by like their electrical bond with the spacecraft and the spacecraft will speed up based on their bond. But there have been pilots in the past who've gone too fast and have never come back from that. And so we were kind of talking about like they can, the ship can actually destroy them while they're flying it if they're not careful. And then when they enter into shocks and, you know, the fuzzy crystal and then they go drive, they drive way more. It's way more fun and interesting to drive, but they have this thing where if they go too fast, they'll go insane. So I think that's what that lyric was like a direct statement of that. That's right there. I always liken them to avatar, how like the avatar aliens connect with the planet. These species connect to electronics in the similar way. Okay. So in order to fly the ship, they plug in their, instead of arms and hands, they have these like, they're kind of like wires, but they're more biological than that. Um, yeah. They, they're kind of like wires and they're more biological than that. And they can plug into the ship. Um, and then the other thing was, you know, and, and my friend Kobe, he's a crystal guy. He helped me out with this. We, we had the term fuzzies, but we didn't exactly know what it was. And he helped me think of the concept of the polyfuseline crystal, which is what makes their planet electronic. It's mind and it, it, it exists in the core of their planet. It's, it creates this electronic, um, an electronic environment or atmosphere, which has caused them to evolve and it powers, they mine it and it powers their spaceship. And it powers the freeze and it's the core power. Like, like it's alien plutonium. What plutonium is to us is what the polyfuseline crystal is to them. And they call it the fuzzy crystal for short. Um, and if they stick their wires in it, they get shocked. So, um, the fuzzy conversation started with this song that John said to river and, 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 and he wanted to sing it because it makes him happy to think about his son on stage. Yeah. But then, no, no, that's not the real reason. The real reason is I tried like 600 words to replace fuzzy with <laughs> and they all ruined the song. I like literally. And so when I was pitching the idea to Joey, I knew in the back of my mind that it was going to take at least 600 tries to replace the word fuzzy. So it might be easier to just demand that we stay with the word. The fuzzy. entire narrative <laughs> yeah. be built around this concept. Because <laughs> you can't change that yeah, word. It, the, the whole part doesn't work anymore. But yeah. now the planet's polyfugia. And the, the aliens are polyfusions. Okay. And, and uh, the, the crystal became the, poly, the polyfuseline crystal, all because of this song that he sang to River. And Shocked came from this song they said to River. And the, obviously, How Many Fuzzies Are You came from this song. And we actually talk more in the wormhole about sensors overloaded. This is what they warn you about. And yes. that allo- alludes to what John was saying, how there have been mishaps with people getting shocked on the spaceship. And they warned you not to do this. Um, but they're doing it anyway. And verse two, the cracks in the windshield, it's, it, it almost sounds like they're, they're pushing it too far that the ship is starting to, to buckle under the pressure 
just as they're starting to buckle under the pressure of their failed mission. That's exactly right. Well, that line is both literal and figurative, right? I drive a Jeep Wrangler and in Colorado, (laughs) the stones from from the street kick up into your windshield every winter and you start with this little ding and sure enough, over the next couple of days, especially if you run the 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 defogger, yeah, it just shatters across the whole windshield. Yes, and so when I wrote that line, uh, it was very much literally cracks in the windshield, spider every which way. They seem to start nowhere, and they shatter the pain. But it's spelled and it's spelled P A N E. Yeah, and and then so in my head with the aliens, they're taking on meteors, and they're 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 being reckless. So they're taking on their windshield is actually getting hit with space rocks and stuff. Yeah. But then also their brain and their, uh, their mental makeup is starting to crack and the cracks are starting to show. So it's as literal in my life is literal in their life. And it's also figurative in their life. Um, but the guns and roses, uh, you know, I'm a West coast running one bad mother, got a rattlesnake suitcase under my arm. It's like 420 fever blisters. My brain, this chip can go faster, but you'll go insane Two amp two since any trouble can't stay in the lane. We'll get you. Notice someday, but two days on that day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was also the little bit of night train in there um, that I was inspired by when I was writing that. That's great. And John, why don't you play the demo, which I think, if I recall correctly, does feature some of Joey's vocals in the background. Yeah, the actual song does too. I do the we're getting. Mind you, Joey came over to the studio like five times that winter. And every single time he had a fresh windshield that had just started splintering. <laughs> every single time. I was like, where you live next to a volcano? Like, what's going on? So this is the OG demo, yeah. And it's sick. I forgot about that part. I forgot about that part.
try to love those uh, Atlanta hip hop hats in there going. That was like, that was the clubby. After I made that loop, I was like, that's the clubbiest thing I've ever made. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> two, two points I want to make, um, you know, one, right. Like on this planet, the planet's ruled by a queen and the sun, she wants the sun to go prove himself. So she gives him this job as the captain of a spaceship who's supposed to go out and discover some form of alien life. Sort of like we would explore the deep sea. They would go discover alien life. Um, and they've got a contraption on the spaceship called the freeze, where if they find alien life, they, they can pulsate like an Island body and, and flash freeze it so they can collect specimens. Um, so the captain and his crew are sent on a job to find alien life but all they're doing is taking shocks off the crystal and they're not doing their job. Yes. And they're, you know, I think we wrote like they're on an intergalactic bender um, nearing the end of the line. So that's kind of the setup of this, you know, they've been in space, not doing their job, getting shocked and something bad's about to happen. The other point I wanted to make, we, we had talked about maybe having like a, an overture type song or something like that. When we started writing the word space overture were mentioned in a lot of conversations around this time. Yeah. We, we had that idea. And when we were writing the song, it was John who just said the rolling through out of space with my brothers. And the second he said it, I was like that, that's how this has to start, right? That is the yeah. perfect line to start the space opera. It says exactly what's going on. It's fun. Um, and it also shows that we're not taking ourselves too seriously with this thing, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a real story with real characters and real emotions, but it's meant to be fun and and funny. And and that line, it, it was just the second he said it, I, I knew Shocked was going to be the first song, and that was going to be the first line of the rock opera. Now, Shocked was debuted on August twenty sixth, twenty twenty two, and over the last year and a half, Shocked has really evolved into a huge set piece, culminating most recently in its place in set two during the New Year's Eve performance, but also the Nughuffer Shocked from Bisco Land. The Nug Shocker. From the standpoint of a live performance, Shocked is a song that it seems like you and the other three guys really enjoy playing. It seems like a fun song to play. I think shocked is so ridiculous. And I think the line that Joey was just talking about does have a psychological effect on the band um, because it does make us feel like a team. And the song is kind of ridiculous beyond that. So it is very much like different and you're not going to build it in a way that you would build a crickets because it doesn't have that similar flow. And so you end up in the shocked jam, which because we were writing these songs so fast has no melody or ending or even direction. Yeah. And so shocked is this weird situation where it's at the slowest possible dance music tempo. It is the sparsest of all the songs, meaning there's a lot of space to be filled with other people's ideas. And it has a nowhere jam inside of it, which is like a thing that the biscuits do when we want to kind of get creative and fun. And yet we always have to do the nowhere jam out of nowhere. Right. <laughs> and, and so in this situation we have shocked is a nowhere jam. We're not going anywhere. We're coming right back. We're actually going down to the vocal. Yeah. So 
it has a situation where there is no requirements in the jam and we don't talk about, okay, we got to do this to set this up for me and I got to set this up for you. None of those conversations have ever happened to this song. And I think that's part of the reason why the band likes it so much because it's a, it's more free. It's a true blank canvas, including when you come back from the jam, which half the time seems to catch everyone, including <laughs> the other three guys uh, off guard because it is, it is, it, it's a sandbox. You can do anything in that shocked space. There are yeah. no rules. Well, I kind of think about the vocal at the end of the shock jam as like when a hypnosis person is waking you up from hypnosis and uh, like you know, and they they wake you up when your time that you've paid for is up, not when you're <laughs> ready to come out of the hypnosis. So if we pay more, the shock jam will go longer. <laughs> I mean, look, it's just like one of those things where I have to say the lyrics in a way that is at a moment where if people are not paying any attention, which a lot of times no one in the band is paying any attention because we're so deep in whatever the nowhere jam has turned into. I have to find a spot inside of that where when I come up and sing a couple words to the vocal that everybody snaps out of it. Yeah. And, um, you know, luckily these guys are all pros and they're good at that. Well, from shocked the band, the, <laughs> I, I went to say the band. I didn't mean the band. I meant the crew. On the ship. mishap that is the inciting incident of the story the wormhole wormhole is a significant song for many reasons not the least of which it is the first song that you guys wrote together based on a biscuits jam and a very recent biscuits jam at that the april 9th 2022 i man so roughly either the day of or day uh, after joey had first shared with me plan of attack in one chance we see that amazing show the caterpillar i man jam and during that jam i turn to joey and i go what is this thinking it's one of his new space opera songs that i don't recognize yet because it was so tight so seemingly composed it felt like something the band had been playing for years but of course it was just one of those magical on stage moments of inspiration that are so prevalent at disco biscuits shows but that moment stayed with many of us joey included and later on became the basis of an important part of the song wormhole A lot of people have been wondering about this process of writing to jams. 
you know, even to the point of speculating, oh, are the songs already written? They're just playing an instrumental version. But talk to us a little bit about how you write to a jam, how you and John have incorporated this into your collaborative process, especially as it played out in this initial instance with the composition of Wormhole. Yeah, well, I knew that it was something I wanted to try out writing over a jam and the biscuits had done it before there's precedent minions came from a jam, uh, strobe lights and martinis came from a dribble jam. Um, and I, I remember at the show, so I, I had wrote that set list with Mark, uh, for that mission show. And during that part, I was like, are they actually going to go to Iman? Because it was so not Iman at the point until they hit it. And listen, I, I love it when the biscuits show their hand early and you can hear the what's coming. I also, when they do it right, love it when it comes out of nowhere and they come from some crazy type two thing. And I, I remember being at the show and they were playing that blah, 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 blah. And just being like, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. I think that this is the wormhole. So this it's got that sort of chaoticness, but, but beauty to it, that would be great for the type of vibe we're going as they're going through a wormhole. And I even after the show, I, you know, Mark and I hang out a lot after the show back at the hotel and, and, and this soundboard had come out very fast and we actually listened to it. I wanted to hear it again. And I, I said to Mark, I said, Mark, I think this is going to be the song when they go through the wormhole. And then John and I actually went on vacation together right after with Lisa and Andrea and river uh, to the mountains right after that show. And you had texted me saying, you think it should be a song. And I said something to John. I was like, oh, we got to make the song. And we were, so we, we kind of knew that that would, and we were going to run out of loops eventually. Yeah. So we knew that, that we kind of knew had marked that as the, the wormhole song. Um, and we always knew that the fuzzy song was going to be the wormhole song. Um, but we didn't exactly know how it was going to come all together. And it just took us sitting down and figuring it out to actually write it. But that was a situation where, John rebuilt rebuilt the jam in Ableton from scratch, basically using the electronic music orchestra that he had talked about before. Um, and we, and then we built around it. Yeah. Cause I didn't hear it. I, I, everyone, Joey told me this should be a song and I wasn't sure like exactly what we were going to do. And you know, it was just one of those situations where I was like, all right, let's just see what happens. Cause I, it, I didn't have any preconceived notion as to where this was going. So I was just like, all right, let's just do it. Let's just make something happen. And then obviously the biscuit version, we took the two track, the basically we just took the file off at nugs and then we put it into Ableton. And then I just kind of rebuilt everything in that one critical spot where the hits happened. Cause I was like, well, you know, at the end of the day, maybe I do like a Jimmy Page whole lot of love thing in these hits and it's awesome. Yeah. And we don't have that in any of our other songs. So I was like, let's just build around that. Wasn't quite sure what the section was. It's like a rising chord progression. The biscuits do rising chord progressions, you know, like, like people eat oatmeal. Like we do it all the time. And I wasn't sure if making a song out of a rising chord progression was going to be that unique for us. But, you know, whatever. It's music. Let's make it. So I built the electric version. And when I built the electric version, I was able to kind of like take the foot off the accelerator of the rising chord progression because I was able to actually change the notes that, that, was, that were doing the different things. And so the accelerating chord progression doesn't really happen till the end of the song where it's really yeah. necessary. And there's some parts in the beginning where it kind of goes in a different direction. And... um 
that was that was when when once the electric version was done and I was able to put that kind of like that kind of quarter note like shoulder pop and beat into it, which is where we sing how many fuzzies are you? And it's kind of like a halftime dance beat. And that halftime dance beat got me really excited about the song. And that kind of happened because making, you know, taking a techno orchestra and just making beats is really fun. You end up with cool stuff pretty much every time. The section from the Caterpillar I-Man serves a real function here. It, it, it essentially is the musical version of, of traveling through that wormhole. It's dramatic. It's intense. It, it being in the audience during that it's percussive. It hits you in the chest. It really has the impact. It serves a musical purpose, but also a story purpose. So Joey, take us through the story at this point. The crew is deep into their binge they are many fuzzies in, and we are now changing perspectives um, from uh, kind of a collective rolling through outer space with our brothers uh, to the perspective of one particular individual member of the crew. Yeah, so, you know, originally the idea was that they got messed up and crashed into the wormhole, I think. The, the narrative has evolved a little bit in my mind that the captain is very shocked and he sees the wormhole um, and in his psychedelic stupor decides, hey, you know what? I'm going to point this ship. At, I'm not going to tell anybody and I'm going to point this ship at this wormhole and we're going to see what happens on the other side. Um, so it, it could go, could be either way. But but the idea is that he's plugged into the ship and his crew sees this ship going at the wormhole. And they're they're kind of like asking him, how many fuzzies are you? How many fuzzies are you? And he's just ignoring them. And he's got this thing pointed at the wormhole. And they're starting to get sucked into it. Um, and then the the lyrics. This was, So there were a couple songs where John and I would freestyle. Um, Tourist is a really good example of that. And this song is a really good example of that, where we've, we, we would just freestyle um, for a couple minutes and, you know, the large majority of the freestyle gets thrown in the trash, but we pull a couple of really good nuggets from it. So the idea of this song is it's, it's sort of the captain's inner, inner monologue, right? He's not saying this out loud, but he's thinking this to himself. And um, sensors overloaded. I mean, he is literally his sensors, right? Because he's electronic are getting getting fried um, because he's plugged into the ship and the wormhole and the ship are interacting and there's so much electronic pulsing. And we talked a little bit earlier. This is what they warn you about. You know, don't 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 do too many shocks and do crazy stuff in space. Um, space has exploded. Pretty sure we got us into it now. You know, I was really trying to, you know, again, put my myself in the shoes of this captain. And you think a lot about captains on ships. You know, the captain goes down with this ship. Yes. That's a very common saying. And so pretty sure I got us into it now was sort of his like, oh, <laughs> oh, shit. I've yeah. really I've really gotten us into it now. <laughs> really basically. And I this so that was part of our freestyle. Um, and then, you know, the second the second verse. We actually had a funny line. We had the, there was an original line. This is uh, play it close to the robe, <laughs> but 
but it became everybody plays a role like space dust. I'm into it now. And, and I, I love that role. It's one of my favorite lines. Um, I think in the biscuits world, especially it takes a village, you know, for a band like this to go forward. And I think about my part yeah. in this thing and the role that I play and the role that the band members play and the, the role that all these other people play. Um, you play with the podcast and Steve plays with some of the stuff and, and just all the, the fans, the different fans that either make art or just go to shows and participate it. Everybody sort of has a role to play in, in, in this community and life. Um, and, 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 and that, that line is, is really about this captain, you know, thinking about what role is he about to play? Yeah. And, uh, like space dust, he's into it now, uh, thinking it's a door or thinking it's a portal to a different world is, I mean, that's pretty, pretty self-explanatory, you know, but he doesn't know where this, this wormhole is going to lead him, but he's got this sense. He, he, he's got the sense he's either going to kill them all, but in the back of his head, he, he feels like he doesn't know why or what, but this is going to take him somewhere that he wasn't expecting and that he wants to go to. This is the Stargate from 2001. You know, you've got the lights flashing on his face. He knows they're about to enter into something completely unknown. He has no idea what lays on the other side of this, but he knows that this is his destiny. This is, this is his fate right now. He has to, he has to live up to his role and responsibility as the captain. That's exactly right. And they didn't know about this wormhole. This was something that they kind of stumbled upon in, in deep space. So, so they have no idea what's on the other side of it. Their, their electronics don't tell them anything about it. He's, he's in a psychedelic altered state and he's just pointed his ship and his crew and he's put everybody in danger. But in the back of his head, he just has this feeling like it's going to work out for the best. John, why don't you share with us now that early demo we have of wormhole. I mean, a lot of my job during the demo is to pick a gangster snare, you know, get a really dope snare sound.
also, John, I remember this and Times Square being finished roughly around the same time you, Lisa and Riv were in L.A. staying at Steve's house. We were all hanging out with Kevin. And we could not stop listening to this in Times Square. And I got the sense by how many times you would play the two songs and then go back and play them again, that you were very pleased <laughs> with how these two came out. Um, it's a big departure and we're jumping all over chronologically in terms of when these demos were actually cut. So you're not hearing some of the early, very raw demos apart from what you heard, for example, from, uh, from plan of attack. But I noticed by this point that the process had really started to come to fruition and the demos I was hearing were really far along that there was a lot of development, both in terms of the composition and the songwriting, the lyrics and the and the music. Um, by this point, did you feel like you guys had kind of hit your groove? Where were you at by the time you were working on Wormhole? I think we had gotten better at producing and better at our our systems, but we had picked all the low hanging fruit. So now it was, it was kind of like the man up part. The hard part was coming because we knew the songs we had left to do were all like very crucial. And we didn't really know how to make them as exceptional as possible. And, and so, you know, yeah, this was a weird song for me because the wormhole was, this jam where we did hits, but the actual final, this version of the song, which is pretty final. Like we had already worked the chorus a bunch, right? So there was a couple older versions of the chorus. There was some different takes on it, but the, um, the general vibe of this song was so fun and so cool that I was kind of thinking whatever we did was going to be crazy. Cause we, I mean, this song to me, just the fact that we got that, level of like funky techno that builds and sounds like you're hitting a wormhole and has all the lyrical moments hit the fact that we were able to hit all those pointers with that song which was basically made in a day and a half you know out of a jam was to me insane um but yeah we also had the upcoming task of like now we have to write the big songs for this thing yeah. what what do you think joey yeah i think i think we wormhole was Number nine, song number nine, uh, Wormhole and Times Square were nine and ten. Um, so we had, had gotten more than halfway. We always kind of knew for, it, it was going to be a 14 song story arc. Um, and it was just, I, I do think we were hitting a groove. One, John, I, I watched John get better in the studio. I mean, every, every session he got better at doing this. Um, Aaron from the second session on was a major part of it. And he was able to really help out with some of these cool sounds. I was getting more confident in my abilities to either write stuff or, or pull stuff from John and, and, and get lyrics down. Um, but almost every writing session we had, we'd kind of come into it with, there's always that, like, what's going to happen <laughs> in <laughs> this weekend. And then, on the other side of it, you're like, oh my God, like yeah. this is really working and this is amazing. And these songs, uh, I, I loved them um, when when we did them. 
the wormhole is one of my one of my favorites. Um, I, I just love the groove. the The fuzzy groove is just so dancey and cool and different. Um, I you know I think the I love the fact that the fuzzy the fuzzy line to John and I is like a really important line. I know some <laughs> fans think it's this silly line or whatever, but to us it actually means a lot uh, yeah. uh, in the way well, I know what it means to him and. And I think it was an early, an early part of our collaboration that really set the tone for what this whole thing was going to be. Um, and so the song just means a lot to me. And it's, I mean, it, it's a huge part of the story, um, them going to the wormhole and, and coming out on the other side. And uh, it, we were, but we were definitely starting to hit a groove for sure in, in our abilities. And wormhole was a song that, at least from my perspective, pretty immediately as soon as it was debuted became an important part of any set that it was played in um, a very weird, unique song. There's not much else that's like it in the biscuits catalog in the broader musical landscape. There's not, you can't really categorize it very easily, um, but it has created some really great musical moments. One that stands out for me was the first inverted version in Hartford. And I remember, Joey, you being really excited when you had figured out like you had like cracked the code of how to invert wormhole. You figured out where it would go, where the jam in would be. And that's something that I think has really propelled the song, because once you figure out where you can break it, then, you know, right where you can create all of the space and where the jams can be. Yeah, I mean, inverting songs is something that I think is one of the coolest things the Biscuits do. I, I've always thought that. I think it's an incredible tool. So almost immediately I was thinking about inverting these songs and pushing for the inversions. Um, Twisted in the Road was the first one. It, it was it was funny. The song I, I was in the drive to that run was thinking about inverting it. And then I think the set list where they actually inverted it, Harrison wrote um, for Mark and... I saw I had I'd already wanted to do that, so I'd been thinking about it. So backstage, um, yeah, we we talked about how to do it, and uh, it was great. They haven't done it since. We'll have to we'll have to bring that back into the into the repertoire. But um, you know, I, I inverting songs is I think just it's the coolest thing. It's it's another way. I mean, in a biscuit set, there's a couple areas where you can create new, right? The the intro jams, the outro jams. And inversions, and of course, there's type two jams and shocked and freeze and stuff like that. But but that segment between a song and the end of another song is always going to be fresh. Yeah. Um. And so and it, and the the what biscuits fans love, they love to guess. They they love to be surprised and they love to guess. And so that element of not knowing what's coming because you're going into the end of something, um, first, I I think is just. I mean, no other band really does it, and. You know, I, from the moment we wrote these songs, I was thinking about inverting them and how we could invert them. And uh, it's been exciting to watch all the new inversions. Um, and we're going to have more. I can't wait. We're going to have an inverted firewall exchange at some point, I'm sure. And we're going to have all these other inversions. It's going to be awesome. Let's move on to the next song, the last song in the first chapter. Well, it's the next to last song in the first chapter, but we've already talked about the last song in the first chapter. <laughs> I keep tripping myself up on this. Thank you for keeping me on track, Joey. And that is Twisted in the Road. Very different song from Wormhole. There's a lot of big ideas, thoughts and feelings and emotions expressed through this song. It's also a song that from its earliest demos, uh, I, I recognized as being a very significant, th th this was the song. 
this and it was very much early on this was the first breakout song from all of the rock opera songs uh it's the song that's been played the most out of all of them it was the first to get inverted it's anthemic but it also has a lot of depth and heart to it and that is of course twisted in the road shall we talk a little bit about twisted in that third position coming out of the wormhole what is the purpose of this song within the greater context of the story yeah so in the story we've got the the characters on the ship right the captain and his his crew um which there's you know his best friend and first mate there's a like a scientist engineer um and there's sort of like a more of a special forces type enforcer alien but uh the other character is is the queen of the planet um and she's the mother of the captain she's kind of put him on this spaceship and she is in polyfusia the other planet um and this song is really about you know the idea of losing something right so essentially what's happening is when the captain goes through the wormhole in a ship they fall off of their air traffic control systems and whoever's in the air traffic control room tells the queen's advisors hey we lost the the prince's spaceship um and we don't know where it is and there's a good chance he's dead and you know to go back to the billy madison illusion uh you know comparisons the advisors to the queen do not like the the son yes uh he has been given everything his whole life they've worked so hard to be in the good graces of the queen and so they find out that that he's gone and they're pretty excited about it and they go to the queen and they tell her hey you know the captain and and we don't uh, i keep calling it we don't have really good names for the characters we kind of do but i i'll take this moment to say this story was never about the names and we didn't want to rely on alien names in the lyrics and other rock operas um both chemical warfare brigade and hot air balloon and game henge and and they they tommy Right, the names are a big part of the lyrics, and we wanted to do something a little bit different. We didn't want to sing alien names in choruses. That is true. Yes. Yeah. And and so we we always really just had the characters, and it wasn't about their names. I'm not actually a very good name person, anyways. It was about who they were and not what they were called. So the advisors go to the queen, tell them that the ship's gone and that he's presumed dead, and that it's time for her to let him go. Yeah. And she walks out on the veranda of her of her of her castle or whatever it is or about her her palace, and she looks at the night sky, and the gist of the song is that they're telling me you're gone, but I hope you have just gotten yourself into some trouble, and that you found and that you're gonna and that I've given you the tools to get yourself out of trouble, and that I'll see you again, um, and. So that's the gist of the song. Um, now, in that November planning session, John played me the the loop, um, and I immediately like was just in love with it. And I knew there was going to be this song where there's this song about loss, and I felt that loss in the loop. And I'll let John take it from here. He he actually had had some lyrics that um, are still in this song that he wrote before we ever wrote the space opera. Now we rewrote them in a lot of places and we changed some lines and we did some things to it. But this, this song I think to John is actually about loss. And that's why I think it resonated with me and this character so much. So I'll let John take it a little bit from there. 
Well, the song was written. There was a there was like a week long session that I did by myself in California, where I basically just locked myself in my studio every day and made a new song every single day. And shocked is one of those loops. Uh, Twisted in the road was one of those loops. And there was I forget what the other ones were, but there was a bunch of I got a lot of good stuff out of that. And so. Um, it was actually Crunk Mike who I sent the loops to because we were just starting the podcast and I sent the loops to Crunk and was like, what do you think? And he was like, oh man, number seven. I love number seven. <laughs> and number seven was Twisted in the Road. And um, and so I've just basically bumped Twisted in the Road to the top because, you know, I figured, you know, if if that was how people were going to react to it, then it was pretty good. But then I could never figure out the drum beat for it until... Um, you know, I kind of knew how the lyrics were going to go and I kind of knew like how it felt, but I couldn't get a drum beat to work for it. And so if you hear, it's just a kick drum. Yeah. So I took the loop and I just put a kick drum in and I took out all the other drum beats that were confusing me. And then I just sang the song. And these are like how basically how I heard the lyrics. So this is like the first version with oh these are old lyrics. These are the old lyrics. This is yeah. the very first demo we covered Conrad the third day of our first session. Yeah so this is I still hear these lyrics every time you play it. Yeah, they were catchy. But these are... Yeah. So here I added a hat. But I'm just trying not to screw the song up with the drums. It's really what I'm trying to do, because I couldn't get the drums right. And, uh, and then I did a lot of like yelling and screaming over these chords and stuff. And I, we had a lot of things to choose from as far as melodies and ideas. And Aaron and Joey were in the studio kind of like working together while I was sorting out the drum issue. And, and Aaron came in and added a few different chords under the lyrics. And Joey had changed a few of the lyrics. And we ended up with this version which had flow and had energy and had meaning and had the emotion in it suddenly. And so it was kind of cool because I had a lot of faith in this loop and this idea. Um, but like it was really a team effort on turning it into the song that it became. as a new parent is there an element of an expression of your protective instinct toward Riv in this song well the, the reason that I did the week locking myself in the studio by myself was I knew River was already conceived at that point but wasn't born uh. and I knew that I needed to stock some music because I might not have time 
So I made time to sit in the studio alone and just work and do a new song every day so I could like get 10, 15 days in and have a lot of new music sitting around. And it was because I knew River was coming and was going to be a full-time job at that point. So this is before the bridge. Yeah. Yeah, I don't and even know if we had the bridge. No bridge. Yeah, no bridge. And this was basically the loop originally right here with the little organ thing and the little bell. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I think I think that... I don't know if the lyrics had that idea to it, but I do know that I made a lot of music in advance. And, you know, kids will motivate you in the in the strangest ways, and that's the way I, I t- took care of it. It has the seeds of the anthemic song that it became present, but it's much more subdued at this point. It's much more melancholy. Yeah, there's no bass and there's no drums. Yeah, this. So when we were writing this, right, you know, we were really trying to capture this, this feeling. You know, again, it, it, she feels lost, but she also feels hope that that he's he's still somehow living and that she's going to see him again, which is good. The Queen really sings two songs: this and Why We Dance. So it's like this is this is she loses him and Why We Dance is ultimately when he comes back. Um, but, you know, some of the lines in there, you know, twisted in the road, maybe you were rolling for far too long. And if there's somewhere you could fly, maybe you could take to the sky, you know. Uh, it, it's just, you know, it, it's all about, you know, you've been out there. I know you've kind of had trouble finding your way, um, you know, and I hope I just hope that I'll see you again. And and then the bridge came, you know, there, I actually have this great video. It's amazing. I, I We'll have to release it at some point, but it's the first time Aaron and John had ever played the full song on piano, grand piano and his guitar or his acoustic guitar. And that's when we added the bridge. And again, the bridge is simply just taking the first couple lines of the second verse and repackaging them over that sort of rising beat. But it really just, you know, hits, you know, uh, and, and we, we changed the way there's, there's a couple of giveaways. Um, in the first verse, or in the second verse, we say, Twisted in the Road, maybe you are rolling. But in the bridge, we say, Twisted in the Road, my baby, you are rolling for solid. And so we're trying to give the listener a hint that there is this familial relationship between the singer of the yes. song and the person that has been lost. And that's, that's one of the ways that we do it by saying, my baby, you are rolling for far too long. And also, you know, Aaron Magner is a bridge machine. and Yes, he is. And yet he doesn't think he's a bridge machine. So he has this like strange anxiety process that he goes through before he plays the exact perfect bridge that you were looking for. And you have to like push Magner through. You have to, to, to initiate the bridge machine. You have to push him through. And the way that we did that was I pulled out the acoustic and he pulled out the piano. <laughs> and then we were going to like launch Magner into a little jam and see if he like wrote a bridge. And he did, right? He did. That's his, this is Magner's, you know, first foray into something that he's excellent at, which is kind of finding the next part of the song immediately. So many great moments <laughs> from the space opera came off of the piano and the acoustic guitar. Uh, when they there there were parts, uh, the bridge and plan of attack, the bridge and twisted in the road. Um, there were lots of uh, when we did uh, the the red supernova. The the end of uh, to be continued was oh, yeah. around the piano. 
um, with me and John singing to Aaron and just improvising. So there was some I think real it was backstage the night of the inverted wormhole in Hartford. That was the, that was the first time we did it in public, but we, <laughs> but we had done it down here. Um, and, and there was a lot of magic created at the piano, uh, with Aaron kind of figuring it out and us, you know, singing along to his playing the piano. Um, and then it's really cool to see that, you know, those acoustic moments, uh, then get, uh, you know, re reprojected or whatever the word would be in electronic form. Um, and knowing where they came from, there's a lot of soul in the, the piano. John, a question I asked you earlier with respect to plan of attack. Did you know what you had on your hands with twisted in the road? Once it was done, it was one of the songs that took a little bit longer to come out. I remember eagerly anticipating it, hoping it would be played, hoping it would be played. You saved it for city Bisco at which point it, it absolutely destroyed. But uh, it, it seemed like from very early on, Twisted was the quote unquote single. And I was wondering if that was something that was apparent to you and the other band members uh, as early uh, as it seemed to be to, to us when it debuted and had its impact. Well, I definitely have had a thought for many years at this point that the band, when we have anthemic choruses, the fans really like it. I mean, you have like a song like I Man which is still getting votes for song of the year still. And what is it about? I mean, I mean, has been this song for the band for a really long time. And what is it about it? And I've always just kind of put it on the chorus of people like singing the chorus along with the band in the way that we do it. It's kind of like a stadium rock type of thing. And I, I definitely thought I captured that and twisted in the road. I don't want every song to be a stadium rocker, but you want at least one in the, in the greater collection of songs. So I kind of twisted and Road kind of became that on its own. And then I felt really good about what we were doing because I was like, okay, well now we have our stadium rock song. So now it's like this, the, the overview of the songs now makes a lot of sense to me. And so I was very excited about it from that point of view is it's like, it's a special, when you can write a chorus like that, it feels really good. And it really takes a lot of pressure off the rest of the songs to, to, uh, to be that, you know, you have it already. So correct me if I'm wrong. Did that original version we just listened to was just you, John, no Magner on it. No Magner was on that version. Okay. Uh, there's versions from before that, that are just me, but that one is the first session that Joey, Aaron, and I did together on it. Okay. And Aaron has been, as you've just mentioned, an instrumental part of this entire process from running the bridges to uh, sitting around the acoustic and these sing-alongs that allow you to work through different elements of the songs. Um, John, had you and Aaron collaborated like this in the past? I know that you and he are also working quite closely together with Nick Schmidl on the very moon. Um, talk a little bit about your history of collaborating with Aaron. Well, I mean, Aaron and I've actually, we, we, we finished kitchen mitts together, um, which was a song that, you know, all that stuff at the very end with the hose and the, the little chorus at the end, we wrote that together at his piano at his house. Um, I don't think I've really put enough of the weight of the songwriting on Aaron's shoulders, but it has seemed that over the years, whenever we've written together, it has been very successful. 
Um, but I always had this idea that I have to do it, you know, with a guitar and, you know, whatever I've talked about. So, yeah. So not using Aaron to his full potential has been like something that we're trying to change because the guy is an endless supply of great ideas. I mean, he can, he can literally give you five great ideas on anything you're trying to write immediately without any practice. You don't have to tell him the chords, literally tell him nothing, but just press record and say, give me five ideas. And he's going to nail it at least once, if not five times, you know, he's just got this incredible, natural, um, childlike, wonderment and just beauty and melodic timing and funkiness into everything he plays. And it's just crazy not to just let him loose on everything and everything. And he does things right. So this song, he changes the chords in the chorus to go along with the vocals. And he didn't even mean to do it. I was like, did you just change the chords? And he was like, yeah, I just kind of felt like they were too heavy. So I just tried. This is no big deal. You don't have to. And I was like, no, those are the right chords. You found the right chords. And, um, and so he does a lot of like, if you just kind of pay attention to the details in the fingers that he's playing, he'll, he'll make a lot of nuanced changes to the song, which end up giving the song a beauty and like a real flow that, you know, this song was actually missing before Aaron, like twist and road didn't have that flow until Aaron kind of gave it to it, but he wasn't even trying to do that, you know? So he's just an incredible player. So, you know, when we, when we started writing this, it was the pandemic and Mark had started a company during the pandemic lively, which, and he was CEO of that. So he was very busy um, during the period of which we were writing this. Um, And Aaron early on, um, we, we, we told him about it. He was very excited about it. And we kind of did the first weekend together and then Aaron kind of expressed that he really wanted to be involved. And once we brought him in, it was, it was, it really helped us unlock a lot of things. Um, Mark was super supportive the whole way, right? We would, we would send him the demos at night. He would give us feedback. He would give us a lot of input. And we've honestly, since we brought, I mean, every song since the space opera Mark's written with us as well. And it's been awesome too. I I mean, they keep getting better and better. So um, but bringing Aaron in at the time we did, um, I really think just up leveled everything that we were doing in here. Um, and it, and the, and there are just so many moments that he created in these songs that were great. Well, we're coming to the end of this podcast installment covering the first chapter of the rock opera, Joey, just one last time recap for us where things stand in the story as we hit this pause and look ahead to chapter two. Great. Thanks. I think that's a really good idea because we've talked about (laughs) a lot of things in a lot of order, but, but basically what you have is you've got um, the story starting with the aliens shocked in space at the end of the rope. They're sent there to do a job that they're not doing. Uh, They, come across a, an un, a previously undetected wormhole, which the captain decides either on purpose or not on purpose. We're not exactly sure that he's going to point the ship right at and go through. Um, when they go through the, the, the wormhole, they fall off of their home planet's air traffic control system. And the queen, the captain's mother 
gets told that her son's spaceship has disappeared and he's probably dead. And she goes out on her veranda at her palace and she looks up at the sky and sings Twisted in the Road, which is really um, a, a song, you know, you're hoping that he has just gotten himself into trouble and he's going to figure his way out. And then what she hopes is true. They make it to the other side of the wormhole. The captain um, had been plugged into the spaceship when they went through the wormhole. So he got all these sort of electronic overload. His circuits were fried um, and he was in a coma. And while he, while he was in a coma on the other side of the wormhole, his crew had learned all about this planet that they find themselves outside of. They learn about earth and about hands and about people and their, all their instrumentation tells them everything they need to know. So that when the captain wakes up, they explain to the captain, Hey, you, we, you were lost. It was, it was a pretty hairy for a little while, but we have found ourselves outside of this new planet. And if we get our act together and we stop getting high and we, we have another plan of attack, we can, we can do what we were sent to do, which is ultimately capture foreign alien life and bring it home to our planet, which will thereby, you know, help us reach our legacy. You'll prove yourself worthy of the throne. Um, but in, we really need to take a different course of action to do it. So we're, we're basically on the spaceship. The captain, by the end of the song, is convinced that his crew is going to get him where he wants to go. And they are ready to take the next step in their journey, which is uh, they're going to have to fire the freeze. And with that, guys, we're going to leave you there. Stay tuned. Chapter two of this saga dropping mid-February covering... Times Square, Freeze, Tourists, and Spaga's Last Stand. We will once again convene to provide you with the commentary, the director's cut from John and Joey, to explain the songs, talk you through where they came from, play you some demos, and hopefully give you all the context you need to really appreciate this long-term project that John and Joey have been on. John, why don't you play us out with that other version? of twisted and uh we will see you guys next time back here on touchdowns all day thanks joey thanks max stuff I didn't know. I've been hearing about this since April 2022. I've been listening to the demos as they've been recorded and 
probably half of the stuff that John and Joey explained to me today, I still didn't know. There are so many layers to this story. There are so many layers to this collaboration. And I am so excited to continue to go deeper and deeper into the history and mythology of Revolution in Motion with you over the next few months. So again, guys, please get out there, tweet, X, post on Instagram. We're up on TikTok now. Share the podcast. Give us a five-star review. Tell your friends about the biscuits. Tell your friends about Revolution in Motion. And tell your friends about Touchdowns All Day. While you're at it, throw us a follow. John's at Barber Shreds on most major socials. Touchdownsallday.com for more information about the podcast, our sponsors, and for links to all of the episodes we've got in the archives. Touchdowns All Day is produced by Crunk Mike and Osiris Media with special help from executive producer Dr. Vic Sobti. We'd like to thank our photographer, Tarek Gracer, for providing us with all the great images that accompany the show. The We'd like to thank our photographer, Tarek Gracer, for providing all of the great photos that accompany the episodes. I'd also like to give some special thanks to the entire Disco Biscuits organization, the entire band, 1111 Management, Andrew Kaplan, The Biscuits Internet Project, Andy Pizzani, Mike Walsh, Rich Steele, Drew Granicelli, Scott McClintock, Think Tank Dubs. Special shout out in this episode for Andrea Rivers. Andrea is Joey's partner. And um, very often, I think that projects like this are made possible, not just by the people who are working on them day in and day out, but by their partners. Dre does so much for this community. She does so much for Joey. And I wanted to single her out for special thanks for everything she's done to help out behind the scenes on this. And while we're at it, I'm also going to thank Lisa for allowing us to take over her John and Rivers home. I'm going to thank Lisa for being such a generous and gracious host. And I'll also thank Avery McMahon again for putting up with me and giving me a ride to the studio. Well, guys, on behalf of Barber, Crunk, Joey, the entire Touchdowns All Day family, I'm Max Dawson saying, see you next time.
Osiris. <laughs> 